This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Specific to the housing, we have been in a crisis situation long before COVID-19 hit and that it just exacerbated things, right? Well, Premier Eby has made some significant moves and I want to play a few clips just to sort of wrap up the week, just in case you've been super busy this week and you haven't heard from the new Premier about what the plan is. Let's start with David Eby, our Premier, speaking about rental restrictions to be lifted in approximately 300,000 units across the province. Responding to the housing crisis means making sure that housing units that are available to be rented are actually rented and provide housing to British Columbians. The first bill that was introduced in the legislature will end those rental restrictions in about 300,000 units across the province. Okay, so ending rental restrictions. We all likely know somebody who lives in a condo where their condo building does not allow rentals and some want to rent out their properties. So here's what Premier Eby has to say on that front. It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual. So cue the people saying how horrible some renters can be. And yes, there are horror stories. But I can put my hand up right here as somebody who for decades was a responsible renter. Um, Some are good. Here's what David Eby says about how uh, there might be some rules for stratas to get rid of bad renters. But people are worried, you know, you get a renter in there, creates a bunch of problems. And how do you get rid of them if there's an absentee owner and they destroy life in the condo and so on? So making sure that there are rules so that strata can go to the residential tenancy branch and have that tenant removed and recover those costs from the absentee owner is an essential part of this as well to make sure that buildings are livable. Now, if you're a regular Mike Smith show listener, you know, this lights up the phone boards when this subject comes up. I've been listening all week long and I do want to open up the phones here on this for the next 30 minutes or so. And we're going to do so with somebody who knows a little something about renters, particularly in the city of Vancouver, one of the most difficult places to rent right now in in this country, if not the continent. Uh, so we're going to open up the phone lines. If you want to chime in at any time, please feel free to join Kit Souter and I. 604-280-9898 is the number. You know the number. Star 9898. An easy and free call on your cell if you want to chime in here. But Kit Souter, the City of Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee is here uh, to talk more about how the narrative seems so loud that renters are bad. Renters are a risk. Renters are horrible. Renters make up most of the population. So let's bring Kit in to talk this through. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Morning, Jody. How are you? 
I'm good. Thank you. What has this narrative been like for you to navigate? As I said, you know, you are, this is literally your business here when it comes to uh, trying to navigate a very tight rental market, particularly in the city of Vancouver. Yeah, it's really tough. And and for the listeners who haven't heard me on CKW before, um, a little bit of my backstory. So I ended up uh, becoming uh, co-chair of the Renters Advisory Committee um, by volunteering my time. Uh, it's a two-year appointment with the city. Uh, the committee has 15 members from across the city, across age groups, socioeconomic spectrum. We've got folks who are like hardline rental activists for the downtown east side and SROs. And we've got folks who work as planners in other cities and, and even with a couple of development firms. Um, and it's our job as co-chairs to try and coordinate that mix of opinions about how those renters want to see the city move forward with good policy. And that's just an example of 15 renters who are volunteering their time for the city to move forward good policy. My wife and I are UBC-educated professionals. Um, we've been living in the same building for the last five years. We moved here from Victoria. Um, and when we had our daughter, who's just about to turn three, we were in a one-bedroom in Den. And for the first 21 months of her life, we slept on the floor between our couch and our kitchen table because our daughter needed our bedroom to be able to learn how to sleep and calm herself and and get through the night. And so it took us almost two years to find a two bedroom. And it happened because of the relationships that we had built in our building during the course of the pandemic by reaching out, helping friends and neighbors. And when a two bedroom apartment opened up literally across the hall, our property manager contacted us and said, we'll hold this unit for you. Um, And that's a great and lucky thing for us. But the thing is that that shouldn't be the way this works. A household that makes a top five or top 10% income should be able to find and choose where they live and where they rent. And that's simply not the case in Vancouver or almost anywhere else in the region. And it's an absolute travesty. So, so many people have felt the pain. There's very little stress as great as searching frantically for any place to live. What you just explained, having to basically sleep on your kitchen floor is just astounding and yet all too common. And I think for the, I'm putting air quotes up, the good renters, right? The, the, do rentals get a bad rap, I guess is my question, Kit. Yeah, well, I I think that for folks who are comfortably housed, for folks who own their properties, um, time moves pretty comfortably, right? And if you moved into a place prior to the 2010 Olympics, let's say, or back in the 90s or back in the 70s, um, your context of your living arrangement is completely out of touch with the reality that exists today. Um, And even compared to, say, 2016, 2017, when we had a ramp up of purpose-built rentals, well, in a year or two from now, we're going to see all of the purpose-built rentals that are currently scheduled in the Metro Vancouver region either be panned or completed. And there's nothing in the pipeline because interest rates are too high to build new rental. And so what we're facing a couple of years out from now is an even further tightening of the rental market. Um, and like my wife and I looked for six years to find a two-bedroom in Vancouver with bedrooms large enough to put a queen-size bed in. Right. Right. And so when we talk about the stress and the impact, if my family had lived in a strata rental and we had gotten pregnant, we would have lost our rental in many of the strata rentals in this in this province. And that's a because they were a kid because they were kid. No kids or whatever. That's right. Yeah. And when you look at the 300,000 units and you look at at least 10 percent of those, 12 percent of those, 
having bans on no one under the age of 19, that's, that's not okay. And we should be building complete communities. We should be building places and spaces for people to live in the fullness of their life. The reforms that have been brought in by the Premier um, and Housing Minister Rankin um, do maintain some protections, right? 55-plus um, communities uh, are being maintained, and they should be, right? There are folks who want to live in uh, the back half of their life and have a similar community around them. They don't want disturbances. They don't want kids yeah. crying at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Totally fine. But the fact that in British Columbia we've had a system for decades where it was okay for a Stratacorp to say, okay – this one property owner doesn't get to have discretion about whether or not they rent at all, which in the first place is a problem. Yeah. And second of all, if you have renters, good or bad, but particularly good, who have been staying in a rental apartment for, let's say, two, three, five years, right? And they're married, they're hardworking, and they decide to have a kid, and you're going to turf them out on their ear at probably – uh, into a market that has seen rents go up, if you're tracking British Columbia over the last 15 years, by at least several hundred dollars, if not thousands of dollars, right? For the listeners at home who own their properties, the average rent in Vancouver for a one-bedroom today, the median rent is $2,500 a month. For two bedrooms, it's 3500 For three bedrooms, which make up in the entire housing stock in Vancouver, uh, Jody, less than 1% of the total housing supply, yeah. Forty eight fifty a month. Right. Wow. That's the same size as most people's mortgages. Mortgages. That's a big mortgage. That's a mortgage on a on a more than a million dollar home for sure. That's right. Cost prohibitive indeed. Let's slip in one quick phone call here. The phone board is lighting up. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Or star ninety-eight ninety-eight is a free call on your cell. Are you a renter? Do you own and you rent your place out. Do you struggle with that? What do you think of these new rules? Ron in New Westminster, you're up first. Welcome, Ron. Yeah, hello, Jody. This is not about good or bad renters. That that really throws the equation right out the window. Um, you know, that there's no bearing on renting in a strata. I live in an owner-occupied strata. We have 63 units. We allow six rentals. We don't have any issues with that. We can also allow rentals on a hardship basis. If somebody is having difficulty moving into the country, they need to rent temporarily, and that is administered usually on a year-to-year basis or when their tenancy ends and it's revisited. Um, the, the problems that we have, if you take all restrictions away, it's not going to help the rental market. In fact, it's probably going to make it work because now we can have investment companies come in and buy up multiple units in a strata building and just rent them out willy-nilly as, as they want, no restrictions. The problem we have with that, it's the owners of the building that have to pay to maintain the building. Whenever we have major repairs, we have to have a vote at an AGM or a special general meeting. When we have too many absentee owners, sometimes what happens, we can't get the quorum, we can't get things done properly, or... These investment companies, because they own so many units in the building, they vote down the major projects because they don't want to spend the money. They're interested in getting their rent, and that's all. They're not interested in maintaining the building. It, it really opens up a big can of worms. So, so let's forget about the good-bad renter scenario. That's not uh, an issue, except for the thing, when you do have a bad renter, I hear David Abbey saying about changing rules, but if we have to go to the rentals board, who goes? 
but a representative of the Strata Corporation, their property manager. You know, these are volunteers in Strata Corporations. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Before the break, we had Ron in New Westminster still on the line with us, and he was speaking about how this uh, the issue surrounding the strata rule changes being brought in by incoming premier or new premier, that is David Eby. Uh, Kit Souter, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to what, to what Ron was saying with regard to these changes and that it being more about volunteer strata boards than being in charge of of managing perhaps uh, renters who don't fit into the community or investors coming in and using them for income and then having the stratas be on, on the hook for main, maintenance and, and caring for the, uh, for the common areas. Yeah. And that's a really tough spot. And, and Ron, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Uh, my dad runs uh, one of the 63% of strata corps that make up uh, less than 10 units um, out in White Rock. And he has a tough enough time making sure that the eight other households um, are in line and in agreement on, on trying to make sure that they've got sidings and roofing repair and everything else. Um, so I totally appreciate that when you have a Stratacorp, you are a set of volunteers uh, who are usually a minority in the building who uh, are as good as the sum of their parts, right? Like this is, this is thankless work. Um, and there, there obviously needs to be some reform on supports for how strata corps um, are supported moving forward if we're going to continue to complicate the way in which this is governed, because the choices that have been made by those strata corporations to not allow additional rentals are almost certainly because they add additional complication for governance. On the speculation side, I mean, this is a consequence of a fundamentally broken market. If you look across the OECD, across developed economies, a healthy proportion of the economy for real estate in GDP is about 7.3%. British Columbia last year was at 19.2%. We are so fundamentally out of whack of productive development, and all of our money is being driven into speculative frenzy, whether it is small families just trying to get ahead, trying to get a foothold, trying to make sure that they feel like they have secure living, buying property as a means of rent control, because we do not have enough homes. So context for that, the province has identified 300,000 strata housing units that they say will be impacted by this legislation. Legislation passed last night. And so if we see 5% of those 300,000 units take advantage of this opportunity to rent, we'll see 15,000 additional rental units come onto the market. For context, we only had 53,000 new homes registered in the entire province last year, but we grew the population by 115,000 people. That's more than twice that population. So we are not building at anywhere near the rate we need to. This is not a perfect solution, and it obviously downloads pressures to strata boards. That is fundamentally unfair and a consequence of how disjointed the market is. What we need to do is we need to move through this, provide the supports for stratas, And I want to make sure that we see this premier and his cabinet deliver when he gets a new minister of housing on December 7th with a reform in line with what New Zealand has done, where they allow three stories and up to three units on any lot in any urban center across the entire province. He's committed to doing it. We're not seeing it getting delivered. He could have done that reform in this session and he didn't move on it. Right. That'll be something that we're keeping an eye on moving forward. Kit Souter, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate your perspective and, and laying it out so with, 
with in such an, a, a way that is consumable for even those of us feeling frustrated by the noise around it. And that's really how you started, not not wanting it to be noisy. I'll be back in a bit. Truth is, I don't know when I'll be back. We're short-staffed again. I just can't be everywhere. We need you now, incoming trauma patient. With so few nurses, she'll have to wait to get the care she needs. Are you gonna help me? Did that shock you? Happens almost every day, but I have to focus on my patients. That is audio from the new BC Nurses Union ad, what it looks like to be a nurse in BC right now. Lots of headlines around healthcare fragility, overwhelmed emergency rooms and understaffed hospitals across the province. BC nurses definitely sounding the alarm. And interestingly enough, we're doing so prior to a global pandemic, prior to where they find themselves now with reduced workforces based on those who are falling ill, not just with COVID-19, but RSV or the flu, the triple-demic that we find ourselves in. Uh, Amin Graywall is the president of the BC Nurses Union and joins me on the line. Thank you so much for doing this, Amin. Good morning and thank you for having me. Honestly, just listening to the spot and watching the the helpbcnurses.ca spot in its entirety, it it's in anxiety inducing because the wellness of our nurses is the wellness of our communities. What is, what is the main focus of the messaging here? How can we as a community help you um, in what must be an incredibly difficult time? That's a great question. You know, um, just listening to it, uh, it just made me feel like I was in the workplace at uh, my work site. And uh, you know, our goal is to let the public know how bad it is and bring about the awareness to the public that the healthcare system is in crisis and that uh, they need to be aware of what's going on, but they can also take action uh, to uh, speak to their MLAs. We have a campaign called helpbcnurses.ca and on there you can uh, click on a postcard that we have that will assist you in uh selecting who your MLA is, and that will uh, go to your MLA as well as to us and to uh, Minister Dix to uh, say that the uh, staffing crisis and the working conditions uh, need to be addressed and uh, the impact that this is having on patient care across B.C., helpbcnurses.ca is where you go. It's a, it's a couple of easy clicks if you want to add your voice to those of our BC nurses uh, trying to get some action from the government. Recently, the provincial government, Health Minister Adrian Dix, along with a, a consortium of BC doctors, saw a, a, a very significant um, boost to what doctors need uh, to shore up some of the shortfalls of our healthcare system. Uh, do you see something similar coming for nurses? Are you being asked what is needed there to find ways of supporting you? How is the discussion, if any, going with uh, the BC government? Well, uh, we're preparing for bargaining for a new contract and uh, things that are key for us is uh, addressing staffing, violence in the workplace, the mental health of our members, and the workload conditions. Because, uh, as you said, we have been sounding the alarms for years, if not decades. And uh, through the pandemic, the opioid crisis, and uh, as you 
just mentioned the triple pandemic. Uh, I can't remember the exact triple demic, yeah, yeah, triple demic, yeah. Um, you know, with RSV and COVID and the flu season, you know, it's just been one thing after the other that, you know, it's been three years that our nurses have been showing up to work and giving it their all and they're not getting a break from this. And when they do ask, you know, to take a day off that they're allowed to through the collective agreement, they're being denied because of operational needs and requirements and uh, you know they need to be looking after themselves as well in order to be able to serve all the members of the community. Yeah I want to take a moment just to thank any nurses uh, listening right now Um, as somebody who has in my uh, extended family needed the healthcare system urgently just in the past week. I had a very, yeah. very close friend of mine suffer a massive heart attack. And if not for the swift action of those at the emergency level, first responders, emergency level, and those in the cardiac wing who recognized his need, he would be dead. And and so we we have to point out that the healthcare system is delivering for the most urgent of patients, but it is in a precarious position right now of not maybe being able to continue at that high level, right? That, that's the message I feel is coming from BC nurses now, doing everything we can constantly, marathon after marathon. At some point, something's got to give, and it can't be, you know, the, the healthcare system breaking at its center. Yeah, they're just stretched so thin with the nursing shortage that there is. That's been uh, occurring for so long, but it's just come to the forefront now because of the pandemic that people are actually seeing and you know um uh where nurses had four or five patients each now they have eight to 12 patients and the patients are sicker they are sicker i just was speaking to someone the other day and uh well just even in nanaimo they had the rally yesterday and uh you know one nurse had a assignment with 55 patients in it and you know our ERs are housing um, admitted patients usually the flow is supposed to be you get admitted you go up to a bed but there's not enough beds and people are in hallways and doubled up in rooms and like you said patients in worse condition there are a lot of over this pandemic nurses have had had to deal with a greater number of end of life patients that that had nowhere to go and and the management of that the trauma and the PTSD piece of this um and I think is is something that goes under discussed as well when it comes to just how much nurses have witnessed what they've been through while everybody was asked to go home stay home stay away from one another they were walking into the fire they were walking into the fire and they were the one that were standing there holding the hand of your loved one or holding the iPad so you could say your last goodbyes because they were the only one with your family one, uh, family member and uh, the only one that was able to convey what you were saying if that person was already um, intubated on a ventilator. Um, so they were the last line there. And, uh, you know, uh, we had the heat dome and nurses going from patient to patient. And, you know, nurses were not given an opportunity to mourn because we do mourn when we lose a patient and uh, not being able to grieve that at that time, especially during the heat dome when you were going 
and during COVID, you were going from patient to patient dying and you were trying to keep them alive. And, okay, this patient saw the past. You weren't able to uh, bring them back, but you saw the next person was uh, starting to go into cardiac arrest. So you ran over to try and save that person. So it was, you know, just a tremendous a uh, impact on their more mental health, their moral dilemmas that they had to face deciding on if two people were coding at the same time who do you go to who do you pick yeah help 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 bcnurses.ca go to help bcnurses.ca be a part of the change to support our nurses amen graywell thank you so much for your time today i appreciate your perspective as always thanks for having me Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. You know, there's been sort of a political football being tossed around when it comes to the housing crisis. Supply being a massive issue. Obviously, new Premier David Eby has come in hot, sort of sprinting out of the gate to try and tackle this and 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 actually pointing to the municipalities a little bit with a, a side eye of not really pushing things through to the point where they could. Uh, one mayor in Metro Vancouver is definitely pushing back on this. And you need only look at the skyline across Metro Vancouver to know that Burnaby is building some significant density. And we want to bring in the mayor of Burnaby, who also happens to be the chair of the Metro Vancouver Housing Committee. Mayor Mike Hurley is on the line with us. Thank you for taking some time out today. Well, thank you for having me this morning. Let's talk about the frustration, um, perhaps, at Premier Eby with him pointing the finger at municipalities when it comes to uh, projects not being expedited to the degree that the urgency of our housing crisis would warrant. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he may be correct in some cases. Um, I wish he would uh, clarify what those cases are. Uh, A report was released from the Premier's office on the other day, pointing the fingers at some municipalities who I believe are doing a great job, including ourselves. Uh, and this was a very, uh, let's say, a, a very small time frame clip that they showed of the housing, of what goes on uh, in housing in the Lower Mainland. And it pointed Burnaby out as, uh, as uh, one of the weaker ones when it comes to housing. Well, I can tell you. Last year, we did $2.2 billion worth of building permits uh, by ourselves. That was a, another record for Burnaby, which has gone on year after year. Uh, you know, we have really tried to be good partners in housing. And, uh, you know, at every, t- at every turn, we have been turned down for funding. Uh, we have put forward seven sites uh, following on the last big government push that promised 114,000 portable units within 10 years. Right away, we got to work, and within six months, we rezoned seven sites, which we made available for free uh, to the province and other levels of government uh, so that we can move forward with 1,200 units of affordable housing. And, uh, you know, we have been turned down at every corner uh, with this with these projects, and uh, which I consider should have been low-hanging fruit uh, for the other levels of government to get on with the work, if that's what they really want to do, of building affordable housing. So I really think that we have tried to be a, a great partner, uh, with the, and, and we continue to want to be a great partner. 
but we cannot do it alone. And uh, so that's why it's such a punch in the gut for me when I hear all municipalities getting criticized and uh, finger pointed at, and I don't think that's the way to solve anything. And if we're going to work together as partners, true partners, then we need to sit down and work out how we're going to go about this. So, Mr. Mayor, what you were just explaining there with regard to the seven shovel-ready projects with a total of 1,200 affordable housing units that you, I think the term is perfect, low-hanging fruit. Why wouldn't you do this? Why was that turned down for funding by BC Housing? Well, the only answers we ever got was that they were oversubscribed. And uh, so so what happened in the last call, which was 18 months ago for uh, community community housing. Um, municipalities across the province put forward 13, enough for 13,000 units, and only 2,400 of those could fund it, including one site in Burnaby that was our smallest site, which will now yield about 90 units. Now, Burnaby has been a, oh. a, a, an incredible partner, like you said. I mean, as I said off the top, I mean, I'm no expert in in density and housing and 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 trying to figure out the affordability versus market versus you know what are condos, what are rental. But the 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 sheer density we see in Burnaby seems to be um, forward thinking for those who are desperate for a place to work and live. Um, how is it that we get all of the members? of this equation to the table to, to like you said, sort out those, at least those seven sites, you can actually build livable spaces within what, six months? Well, it wouldn't be six months. It takes, it takes a bit longer than that, but probably 18 months. Uh, once we have shovel ready projects that uh, 344 units, which are right ready to go. We have a $15 million shortfall given all the money and sites that the city has put in. Uh, that would be $48,000 per unit uh, for the provincial government or the, or the federal government to fund. Uh, I think that's a pretty good deal uh, for the other levels of government to, to continue to point the fingers at us. And, right. uh, that's why I just think it's unfair, and, and uh, that's why I'm pushing back, because uh, I just think that, you know, we're not going to solve a crisis by finger-pointing. Right. Um, and I know I may be doing that now, but I think I've been pushed to that position uh, just because of what what's being pointed at uh, at municipalities. Yeah, it's true that municipalities seem to be getting thrown under the bus quite a bit here. And and as you keep saying, trying to be good partners, but they have to work both ways. And you're not alone in your want to correct this housing crisis that we find ourselves in and as chair of the metro vancouver housing committee what would be the first thing that you might do if 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 the government were truly to look in you at your committee and say okay where do we begin here what needs to happen first because it feels so muddled well you know to me it's very simple we need to build housing let's get rid of all the noise around that building housing sit down and figure out you know, how we're going to fund these, and we're willing to do our part in that, uh, you know, with providing sites and providing some funding even uh, to get these sites going. Um, so, you know, it's not as complicated as it's been made out to be. Let's find a way to fund these projects, yeah. and let's move on and stop talking about it. I mean, 
stop making announcements of all this funding that's available when it's not available, and uh, let's um, you know let's sit down and, and get to work. Uh, we're ready, and uh, we're calling on the other levels of government to join us in uh, starting to address this issue. How much of the red tape comes along with uh, you know new initiatives or environmental uh, concerns when it comes to new builds? Well, you know, there, there is a bit of that. Uh, however, all of that can be addressed. It shouldn't right. become it shouldn't become the big issue that you know some make it out to be. Uh, you know, let's get to the table and work together. Uh, and I'm calling on 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 the premier, who I know is passionate about housing, and and I think he's you know he he's right on board that he wants to do it. But I think. Let's cut through all the all the noise that's going on around it. Let's get to work and build the house. Thank you for your time, Mr. Mayor. We really appreciate your perspective on this. Okay, thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith on this Friday. And typically this would be Baldry's beat, but Keith Baldry has a day off, deservedly so. Uh, we are efforting to track down the one and only Richard Zussman for the fuss with Zuss. Yes, we named it just for this Friday, this Black Friday. We're going to get into Black Friday talks too in a little bit with Eric Chapman. We've got a lot to cover off on the program today, but let's talk a little bit about BC politics while we await a Richard Zussman joining us on the line. Oh, do we have Richard now? I think we, I think we might have. Okay, we do have Richard now. Richard Zussman, it's time for the fuss with Zuss. Welcome to this <laughs> Friday program. How are you? Hey, Jody, I'm great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you doing this, stepping up and stepping in. We are going to open phone lines uh, for those who might have some questions for you, Mr. Zussman. But certainly, even since this program, this has been such a busy week for BC politics. Since we started this program at nine o'clock this morning, we even have more news to bring that we haven't even had a chance to touch on yet. BC's fiscal update. What have we learned? All right. This is a little bit crazy. So the surplus now in British Columbia is $5.8 billion. So remember back to the pandemic and our economy was in shock and all economies were suffering, but we saw this massive deficit climbing into about $12 billion in BC. And yeah. as the economy gets roaring again, uh, things are correcting themselves. And uh, based on the forecasts the province does, there was a complete underestimation in terms of uh, CRA transfers around income. And due to those corrections, 
the province is now forecasting uh, $5.8 billion surplus. Billion with a B. It's and hard to wrap our heads around billion with a it B. Is. It almost takes a moment just to like let that sink in. <laughs> and and the thing you this? can do with that sort of money, Jody, mm-hmm. and Selena Robinson, the finance minister, was stressing that this is a shock reaction, that the economy is going up and down, there are headwinds ahead, there are challenges around global inflation, there are concerns about potential recessions, all at the same time as a premier walking into the premier's office a week ago today saying, I have some major issues that need solving. And now he has money to solve them. And we know that he spent more than a billion dollars in the last week around public safety, RCMP officers, uh, credits uh, for British Columbians, uh, both low and middle income, and also the credit that uh, BC Hydro customers will receive. But now the premier is no doubt wondering to himself, is it time to spend on health care? Is it time to spend in other areas of the economy where there needs to be a serious influx in cash. And then that comes back to the principle, Jody, of is it money we need or is it policy shifts? Because if we're going to throw money at a bunch of staff, but we can't hire the staff for the healthcare sector, well, is it really worth it? So there's going to be a debate going on between the finance minister and the premier, no doubt, about the way that this money can be spent. And as quickly as this money came, there are some worries that it could disappear. But while it's here, is it time to spend? And that's, you know, economists will have different thoughts on this compared to politicians. But now the fact that we have $5.8 billion, Jody, we get to have those conversations uh, because uh, it's, it's a strong economy, as strong as any in this country now. Uh, and British Columbians will hope to benefit themselves from that strong economy we're feeling. It really is something, you know, Richard, and it's a good problem. Let's start with that. Good problem to have just, you know, an extra $5.8 billion on the books. Even as you mentioned, headwinds, uh, you know, preparing for what might cost the province a, a great deal in terms of recession or, or just the issues that we continue to face as a society, you know, across the country, never mind here in the province, but some of the massive expenditures that have come over just this last year, atmospheric rivers come to mind, heat domes, you know, the, the cost of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, everybody going home, staying home. And, and yet when people want to be very upset and you and I have had, I've lost count of how many times we've had conversations about COVID and, and the, the mandates and the, and the restrictions that we've lived with here. People sometimes forget in British Columbia just how different our experience here in this province has been, not just uh, in, when we, you go up against what happened in other provinces, but really in all of North America. We are the only jurisdiction in North America who kept schools open through this pandemic. Yeah, for that period of time starting in June of 2020 all the way right through until now, the the schools reopened uh, and never closed. And that can't be said anywhere else, as you mentioned. And that largely helped drive the economy. And and there will be some yelling at the radio saying, well, what risk did we take? Why did we prioritize the economy over the health of British Columbians? That, that isn't what Dr. Henry believes she did in that case. And, you know, a thorough discussion of that is probably best served for another day in terms yeah. of weighing health repercussions to economic repercussions. 
But there clearly was a consistency in British Columbia through the guidance of Dr. Bonnie Henry that led to our economy recovering faster than other places, that there was a certainty that existed here that helped steady the hand of the economy, allow businesses to operate, allow people to get back to work. And all of those factors at play mean that the economy and now has stayed strong and now we see this gigantic surplus. And the other factor we haven't even mentioned yet, Jody, is this conversation that's going on with public sector unions. And yes. deals are getting ratified. We, yeah. for the first time, had a number tied to that today. Uh, off memory, something like $10.3 billion over three years tied to these negotiations. But there will be some, especially the nurses who are still in the negotiating process, will wonder, well, you know, yes, we saw those other deals signed, but we need more. If the yeah. province has money to give out, if we have billions of dollars in the bank, why not provide that money to us nurses who are on the front lines and, you know, you can't turn on CKNW or turn on Global and not see the pressures that our healthcare system is currently feeling. And we that's just had, on the shoulders of healthcare workers. Yeah, we just had Amen Graywall, the president of the BC Nurses Union, on with us not half an hour ago, uh, speaking to this specifically without knowing the surplus uh, on the books, a $5.8 billion surplus that was announced today in the fiscal update. Can you do me a favor, Richard, for the layperson? Uh, one of the quotes within your story at globalnews.ca, which, by the way, everybody should be uh, making sure they're following Richard Zussman as well as uh, staying updated. Uh, your Twitter is such a, a resource for people. We missed you when you were on vacation. Uh, <laughs> one of the quotes is, the changes we are seeing are primarily due to updated income tax revenue data from Canada Revenue Agency here in BC and across the country, far beyond what was forecasted when we built our budget. How is it that there can be such a huge gap, like a huge gap in the forecasting? Is the forecasting broken Richard, that is that is exactly the question I asked in the is technical it? briefing, Jody. I've learned yeah, from you, my friend. <laughs> it, it, it is it is hard to understand, and the modeling they say is not broken, but modeling does very poorly when there are huge shocks to the system. Modeling right. is based on consistency. Modeling is based on historical data. Modeling is based on assumptions that we make based on what we've seen over time. And there was a concession here that this is not normal time, and the models, in essence, missed it. And we only collect that federal data once a year through our income taxes. You, you do your income taxes, uh, hand them in in April, uh, and then the numbers don't get processed until the summer, and then those numbers get passed on to the province, and then they have an understanding. But there were some, a lot of people made a lot of money over the last year that was um, surprising to these models. And it ranges in scope from, you know, income earners. And based on those assumptions, it just broke the model, in essence. Mm -hmm. And the worry, obviously, is could that happen on the flip side? And right. the economists here uh, indicated that that's not likely, that this is one of these sort of once in a period of time sort of moments you know i don't want to say generation or decade or because there was no quantification there but that this is such a rare economic event as we the economy roars 
following COVID measures, as people get back to work, unemployment is record-breaking lows, like all of these factors. So, but yeah, I, Jody, I'm worried too, like you are, about the fact that these models may just not work. And that makes it, the reason it's important is because it then makes political decision-making nearly impossible. If you don't know how much money you have, how can you make decisions around fiscal prudence, around spending, around focusing in different areas? Because there will never be a time where there isn't somewhere that politicians can spend our money. <laughs> that yeah. is, they will always find somewhere. There are always issues. And we're yeah. hitting this Mount Rushmore of issues right now. Healthcare, affordability, housing, public safety. They all need tremendous funding along with so many other issues in this province. So the fact that we can't rely on these models makes it very hard to know how to spend our money. And welcome back to this Friday edition of The Fuss with Zuss. Richard Zussman, our Global BC legislative reporter, is with us on the line. And Richard, boy, do we have a stacked phone board. People would like to chat with you. Should we get right to it? Let's do it. All right, James in White Rock, welcome to the show. You're up first, James. Hi, thank you. I'm usually used to talking to Keith. It's nice to talk to Richard. How are you? I'm doing great, James. So in this pandemic, there was a certain demographic called construction workers and tradespeople that were deemed essential services. And that was primarily to keep the economy of this province alive, because if the construction didn't go on, this province would have been done. And everybody knows it. Now, through all this, I hear all the unions whining about how they want more. They deserve more, blah, blah, blah. We didn't get squat. We didn't get any extra protections. We didn't get any kind of tax rebates. We didn't get anything. And if we had to stop for two weeks, you know how much this province would have lost in revenue? That $5 billion would have been down the tubes if we had to stop working. Toss so, us a question I in there, James. We've got a full phone board, buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to know whether or not it, there's going to be any discussion about the people that actually kept the province alive, whether they deserve anything or not, besides just Thanks, the unions. James. Thanks, James. Anything for construction workers? Yeah, and largely uh, the companies in which people like James worked for benefited hugely by this. And there will be conversations with those employees and those businesses around potentially a better way to share some of those increase in revenues. And there has been at times that we've seen nurses and teachers, but even construction workers are part of those conversations around keeping the lifeblood of. And that's one of the challenges that, you know, the private and public sector have to balance is about finding those priorities and ensuring that people are properly incentivized for the crucial work that they do to keep our economy going, because no doubt construction is such a crucial part in terms of driving BC's economy. Let's go to Dave in Mission next. Welcome to the show, Dave. Uh, Richard, thanks for taking my call. Um, I listened to Richard talk, and you guys talk on about, uh, about nurses and how they're, you know, the, the life, basically the lifeblood of, of the medical system, but when it came down to the pandemic, the one people, the, the one group of people that I hardly hear ever talked about, which is almost never, is respiratory therapists. And they've been shortchanged in contract 001002 over the years. And these are the people that definitely were the ones that were keeping your loved ones alive during the pandemic. And I'd like to know if there's anything in it for respiratory therapists here in this uh, in these you know, in the, in the upcoming contracts and stuff like that, because they are, they are the ones that really, really are the ones that kept people alive. So, Dave, I will look into it. I know that the extended healthcare sector is currently in negotiating with the province. So we got the new yeah. deal for doctors. Uh, we continue to have conversations with the public sector workers, but I keep seeing advisories pop into my email inbox about the specialist positions. And 
Uh, no doubt respiratory therapists are a crucial part of the system, but we are taxed in all parts of the healthcare system. And uh, there is a significant conversation happening in this province around ensuring that we are properly paying um, all classes of specialists within the system. Uh, it is a commitment that Adrian Dix has made to ensure uh, that uh, these positions are properly compensated, not to speak specifically to the respiratory therapists, because I don't know where the labor negotiations are at uh, with their union uh, or with their conversations with the province. But it is part of the issues. And there's also obviously stress issues. I think respiratory therapists probably are feeling um, uh, an increased level of uh, workplace stress due to the pressures of the pandemic. And like all sectors, you know, our colleague Keith Balder reported on this yesterday, we are seeing record-breaking number of absenteeism in the sector, even higher than at the peak of COVID because of RSV, because of the flu. And that pressure means that people are working short-staffed. When people work short-staffed, I have to, you know, help pick up the slack and jobs here for Global today because we have someone out. When you take yeah. on extra jobs, it makes your job harder. And that is universal across the board. Not to compare the work I do to respiratory therapists because they are in the front lines every day. So we're nurses. And, and that sort of pressure is going to come on the backside and be a problem for the province as, because we're going to see early retirements and people leaving due to stress leave because it's just natural that when they have so much work put on their shoulders, it's challenging to do your job. Bella, and like many kids her age, she's already a screen genius. A little uh, taste of a story that is making headlines, certainly some new guidelines around toddlers and screen time limits. Uh, it is quite something for parents to navigate, particularly when their kids are so into the flashing lights and perhaps wiggles available on their iPad. I speak from experience on the Wiggles. So there are some changes uh, that have come from Canadian pediatricians with regard to guidelines around our children's screen time. And we want to dive into it. Our next guest is the Canadian Pedi Pediatric Society's Digital Health Tax Task Force. Excuse me. Let me try this again, doctor. Canadian Pediatric Society's Digital Health Task Force and a developmental pediatrician based in Montreal, Dr. Stacey Belanger, is with us. Hello, doctor. Yes. Yes, hello. <laughs> Thank you for inviting good, me. Good to have you on. Okay, so my I have a newly minted 15-year-old, so I could talk about screen time with a teenager. Uh, but certainly he was born in a time where digital health was at the forefront, but certainly early adapted to having a handheld device available to kids to the degree that we have seen over the last decade or so. Uh, what, what are the new guidelines telling parents today? Yes, yeah, so the Canadian Pediatric Society uh, Digital Health Task Force uh, published the guidelines. Actually, we published the first time in 2018. Um, and many of the recommendations haven't changed, but we um, reviewed the literature and the research uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic um, time period, which we know a lot of children, uh, teenagers and adults spent a lot of time in front of screens. 
and therefore modified some of the recommendations. The key recommendations haven't changed. Basically, babies under the age of two do not need screen time. Right. Uh, there is a, a lot of evidence and research showing that um, young brains grow and develop best uh, with real-life um, interactions um, that are happening in the context of with a, a loving caregiver, a parent, uh, a relative, or, uh, or a teacher or a friend. Um, young children need for us to talk to them. They need for us to read with them and to play with them. Um, and research uh, clearly shows, research before COVID-19 and newer research since uh, the pandemic, um, that excessive uh, purposeless screen time uh, can actually um, lead to uh, affect development and affect even physical health. So in terms of development, we know that it can actually delay language acquisition I can interfere with the development of motor skills, for example, running, jumping, uh, balancing on one leg. Um, it can interfere with social play, social skills and play skills, um, and even with uh, emotional development. Um, we also have evidence that uh, excessive screen time in young children, so we're talking about children zero to five, um, will also affect can have effects on physical health. So there are studies that have shown that it might affect vision. Um, we have convincing evidence that it affects the quality of sleep um, and evidence also showing that excessive screen time has been linked to more sedentary behaviors and therefore um, um, poor eating habits and increased weight gain, even um, obesity in very young children. Wow. So like a sedentary lifestyle being associated with just sitting and watching a screen as opposed to, you know, hey, kids, get outside. Let's go run around the neighborhood or let's go run in the backyard or go to the playground or what have you, which used to be what we did. You know, the parents that would say, don't come home until the streetlights came on that has turned into let's all sit and and look at our individual phones or what have you for for an older kid. But where has it changed, if I may? We're with Dr. Stacey Belanger, who is a Canadian pediatrician. Pediatric Society's Digital Health Task Force and a developmental pediatrician based in Montreal, just to, if you're just joining us. Um, what has changed with the unavoidable part of childhood? Because there is that piece of this. And if people are just bouncing along the headlines, the headlines are saying, you know what, it turns out the screen time isn't bad for your child. Well, certainly you're, you're, you're bringing us a cautionary tale. There's a caveat to mm-hmm. that. It still is detrimental certainly in very young children if i'm if i'm hearing you correctly but even with the older set you know too much screen time will lead to some some consequences that nobody wants unhealthy consequences at that but speak to what the unavoidable part of childhood means in all of this um well i mean screen times are are omnipresent we can't we can't avoid them and I think what we are uh, recommending is that um, there, there, there are certain um, um, guidelines that, that we can follow. And we talked a lot about the um, evidence uh, leading us to recommend um, what we call the four M's. So okay. me- minimizing screen time, um, mitigating the negative effects of screen time, 
uh, mindful use of screens in, in one's household, and also modeling healthy screen use uh, by, by um, turning off screens uh, when the whole family is together, having activities that don't require screens, um, making a habit of turning the television off. If you have a child who routinely has uh, access to screens many times a day, and, and we talk about screens, we don't just talk about television, computer screens, laptops, um, telephones. Um, we can remove, begin by removing slowly um, one of the screens and then slowly progressing to removing more and more. Um, we recommend turning off the screen, for example, during family meals. Um, if you have screens on in the background that nobody's attending to, we can turn them off. Um, we want to basically have good screen habits early on because we know that when we establish uh, healthy screen habits uh, in young children, um, these healthy uh, habits will um, be also followed uh, when the children get older. Um, I want those, I want those four M's again, because I honestly, those are so useful. And for parents listening right now that are wondering, what are my actual guidelines? It's minimizing, mitigated, mindful and modeling. And I think that last piece of modeling good screen behavior really comes to the fore. As I mentioned off the top with you, doctor, I have a 15 year old, newly minted 15 year old. And one of the things he would say to me, and it was mid pandemic when we all were leaning hard into our screens, we would go, we'd walk outdoors, we would do the five or seven K and then we'd come home and it would just be nonstop screens of one form or another. And I'd say, put your phone down or, or turn the stop video gaming. And he goes, well, you've got your phone in your hand. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we started so to say, okay, screen time. Yeah. yeah. Everybody phones on the, healthy, on the kitchen counter. Yeah. Modeling healthy screen use is probably the, the most difficult of all the four M's that, uh, that, that we recommend. Um, basically, the, the parents have to turn off their devices also during family time um, when they're at home. Um, as I said, be very aware if there's background television uh, mm. to turn it off and encourage participate in family activities that are, that are, are not um, associated to, to screens. Outdoor play, you mentioned, uh, board games are coming back, uh, yeah. arts and crafts, uh, shared reading with your child. These are all activities, family activities that um, we're sort of not practicing as, as much as mm. we probably should and therefore are relying too much on the screen. So basically the recommendation, babies, uh, very young children under two uh, do not need any screen time. Children two to five, not more than an hour a day of all the screens. So right. we have to take into consideration when a child is in daycare, for example, he may also be being exposed to screens. So this is the total time uh, of, of screen exposure. Great reminders. That is a big part of it because they do lean into screens in schools these days. Uh, that is for sure. Uh, what an eye-opening discussion. Thank you for this, Dr. Belanger. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in the topic. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.